So, uh, my name is Dan Landstra, and I'm a teacher at Unity Christian High School up in Hudsonville. So, uh, glad to have you here this morning. We, I hope everybody found this. It's supposed to be in a different room, and then this, just this morning they switched it down here. So, a little more space, I guess. But uh, a really attractive feature of this room is this nice big pillar here. I really, I've already learned to appreciate that. It's like being in the old Tiger Stadium. But, <laughs> Anyway, it, uh, I'll try to move around a little bit so you can see me or see the screen or, or both. But uh, it's good to have you here this morning, and uh, we have a, a lot of things to cover in a short amount of time to do it. And so I will move somewhat rapidly. If you have questions or comments, feel free to, to speak up or raise your hand or whatever you'd like. But uh, the, the focus of this morning is really three things. Faith development, iGen. If you are not familiar with that term, you will be. Uh, and then social media culture. What we're not going to do, I'll just lay that out front for you, we're not going to spend an hour uh, just talking about social media. Uh, there's a there's a kind of a bigger picture that social media fits into, which is our culture and the generation that our kids are sort of growing into right now in grade school up through high school. So we'll spend time on all three of them, uh, but not just on social media. I thought that was kind of important as well. And... Uh, I do have a countdown timer on my on my phone here, so I don't uh, so I keep track. There's no clocks in here either, along with a big pillar. You think you put a clock on that thing? But it didn't. Now I'm just curious, just so we kind of have an idea in here. Now uh, we have a range of age, a little bit, and I'll talk about that in a minute in this room. But how many of you right now on your person you have your phone? Okay, let's try this. Is there anyone who does not? I'm looking. Seeing no one, so everyone has a phone in here. Okay, we need to use it today. But if this was my classroom, I would have already said, you know, probably you know, devices away, and we would have gone about that. But how many of you do somewhat of the same in your classroom? Devices away, phones away. Maybe you have a policy in your school, different things like that. How many of you, as teachers, have uh, whether you've been a teacher for a long time or a short time, you've already dealt a little bit. And you feel like you're kind of uh, a little bit sick of it dealing with phone issues in school. Yes? Okay. Well, we're not here to also bash on phones for now. They're staying. They're not going anywhere. Uh, the issue is how to use them, all right, and uh, the way sort of our kids are understanding to use them as well. So uh, to get us started on this, I thought I would start with where any Bible teacher starts. And I should tell you this, too. My job at Unity Christian I've been there for 24 years now. This is my 24th year at Unity. I spent three years prior to that in Sioux Center, Iowa, teaching at Sioux Center Christian Middle School. They have their own convention at Dort. They don't come here, uh, those schools. But uh, just this year, we created a position at Unity called the Director for Spiritual Life and Leadership. And so along with teaching Bible to seniors, I now have that position as well, working with specifically with a lot of kids and the st stuff that they deal with, with chapels and how the spiritual development through school, the 9 through 12, really helps going. So we're kind of building the bridges, we're walking on it in this position, but it's been a lot of fun to, uh, to learn through that process as well. So for all of us this morning, as we start this, uh, this hour together, I thought I'd use a passage that to me fits a lot of the stuff that we do in Christian education. God's breathed life in all scripture. It is useful for teaching what is true. And that, that word true is something I'm going to kind of hammer a little bit throughout this hour. Uh, what does that actually mean anymore? What is true? 
It is useful for correcting our mistakes. It is useful for making our lives whole again. It is useful for training us to do what is right. By using scripture, the servant of God can be completely prepared to do every good thing. So it's uh, a context, a sort of framework for a lens. Okay, a lens to sort of see your life, to see everything through it, including technology as well. I know everybody here has heard that before. That's not something new, but how? Maybe today some of us might need this verse as well. Uh, a little encouragement in October. It's been some of us have been in the school since you know mid-August. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and flying. Be alert servants of the master. Cheerfully expect it. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Sometimes uh, you need to hear something like that because you're like, good grief. You know, in the world with these kids or something you've dealt with with a particular student in your class this year that's kind of a problem. You don't know how to handle him every day. You have to tell him to put his phone away, whatever the case might be. So a little bit of encouragement also from the Bible. So I wonder in your school how many of you say this is a, and you don't need to raise your hand in this, but this is an uncommon thing to see a kid anymore holding a Bible and outside of a time when they're told to do it, to actually sit down and read it. I'll just say from, from most in my, in my position, it's not common anymore. It's really not that common. And I'll, I'll give you a specific statistic. We survey our kids a lot at Unity to find out like what their practices are, what they think, you know, what, what direction they think they're going. And we have found that over the last 10 years, personal devotion practice has decreased steadily over the past 10 to 12 years. And I don't believe that we are sort of an anomaly school. I think it's probably fairly consistent. And we, we promote it. Uh, through chapel, through individual Bible reading programs, things like that, it's just hard to get kids to go to their Bibles. So what we now know is that roughly 87% of our kids uh, sort of confess that they don't do really any personal devotions at all. Uh, 87%. That's in a Christian school community with Christian school kids who most of them come from Christian homes. They just don't read their Bibles very much anymore. So are they Christian? Yes, and they would definitely say, I'm a Christian. But their, their knowledge of what the Bible says, is, is, and if you ask them, if somebody have, why, why, why not? The number one thing that I hear from kids on that question, why not? It's just really hard to make time. And now you say, well, wait, that's just an excuse. You have time. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. But I don't know if you sensed it uh, in your schools as well, but just the amount of reading of the Bible. So that's the first part, faith development. Second part of it in the in the description of the of the uh, sectional was um, iGen and social media. These are the five most used social media platforms for high school students in 2018, going into 2019. I don't know if all of you know what all of them are, but I suspect that you do. So I would wonder how many of you know which is, there's one of these five that is by far the most used social media platform. Over five. How many of you can go? Okay, let's just say it right here. It's not this one. Okay, that's for the parents and the grandparents, right? That's what your school uses to keep them informed. Kids have it, but they don't. They only check it because they want to see what their grandparents are up to, right? So how many of you would think it's Instagram? Most used by teenagers. How many think it's Twitter? A couple. How many think it's Snapchat? How many think it's YouTube? All right. Quite a, quite a growing trend here, and actually the information I researched, uh, when that research was done, it's current research, things have changed since then. There is a, there's a sprinter in this race, and the sprinter is YouTube. Right? YouTube is by far right now the most used social media platform for kids. 
and they have a lot of people that follow. More and more of my kids are getting their own channel, their own, like, this is my YouTube channel, I got my own thing, and YouTube. So that little arrow, that's actually a retooled kind of a logo for YouTube as well. And you can get, now you can get YouTube to TV, YouTube Red, you know, there's all different versions of that as well. So those are the ones that uh, our kids are using the most. Snapchat certainly is in second place, in a solid second place, followed by Instagram, followed by Twitter, and then bringing up the rear along the way back is Facebook, right? So those are the ones. A little bit of background so you know where some of this is coming from. Uh, I would highly recommend, if you're interested in like generational studies, to go to the Barna stuff. George Barna and the Barna Foundation, uh, their stuff is outstanding when it comes to research on what the trends are in generations and what trends are in Christian education, what trends are in culture. So some of the stuff you hear today is going to come from this Gen Z book that is from Barna Research. It's, rel it's fairly recent. It's, uh, their, the research ended in 2016 for this book. Right? So that's as about as recent as you can get for reliable data. The other one I would really highly recommend, she's interesting just to read, even if you don't really care about data. And I, I'm, I'm, gonna not, I'm not gonna lie to you, I'm not always sure how to pronounce her last name. So I'm in Dutch, it has to end in straw or something. <laughs> but I think it's twinge, but I'm not completely sure. But she is a very good speaker. If you ever get a chance to go hear her, she's really, really good. Uh, but this is a brand new book that just came out, and I've used a lot of her research to sort of pull some things together for this presentation as well. So that's a little bit of where this stuff is coming from. Now, if you know me at all, you know I use this quite a bit. I've used this image and that, this phrase quite a bit over the last couple of years, but if you want to understand water, this is an old, old proverb, not in the Bible. If you want to understand water, don't ask a fish, right? Because the fish does not understand what it means to be wet. Right? And I say, wait a minute, it lives in water. Well, yeah, it does, but it doesn't know what it means to be wet because it's never experienced anything other than water. So in order to understand it, you have to go outside of it to know what it means to be dry. So you understand water because you can be wet and dry. So you have a sense of the difference between the two. Well, one of the things that is frustrating is, you ever heard that expression? I know you have before, when, when especially the older we get sometimes, the more kids these days, these kids these days, right? Go to, you know, uh, the grandparents, these kids these days. Actually, it's more the middle, middle-agers that say that. The grandparents tend to be a little more compassionate uh, than the middle, middle-agers, like me. Right? So, kids, you can't believe it. Never recognize how your generation is always superior to the ones that came before it, the ones that come after it. When I was a kid, right, that kind of thing, we walked, you all, you all know the, the, the lines, right? But uh, So we are going to try to take a step out of our own situation and try to take a step into their world and see things from their lens a little bit because it is different. It really is different. And maybe to do that... Just a really quick primer here on this. Uh, generational understanding. People always ask me, well, how do you know which one you're in, or what are the dates? And they're, they're a little bit fluid. There's not like a hard and fast number. And we'll see kind of where everybody is in this room. I'm, I'm a little interested in this. So the first one, they are typically called the elders or the silent generation. Uh, Tom Brokaw calls them the greatest generation. If you've ever read that book before, heard of, the, heard of that? Why do they call them the silent generation? Well, the idea was that they didn't have time to talk. They were too busy working, right? And so they got jobs. They didn't complain about anything. Back in my day, we didn't have shoes, you know, things like that. Right? So do, do any of you have any staff members working at your school yet who are from the silent generation? 
look and I'm done. We have one. We have one. He's 83. He's really a volunteer, but he's there three days a week. He's been at Unity for uh, ever, right? So it's a long, long time. Next one. Most of you have heard of the baby boomers, 1946 to 1964, post-World War. This is the generation where the explosion of babies, and they grew up in a more prosperous America than their, than their parents had known. And a lot, of, a lot of prosperity came out of the baby boomer generation. How many of you have teachers in your school who are from the baby boomer generation? How many of you are in the baby boomer generation? Okay, all right, represent. Here we go. You tell those young people what for. <laughs> Next one, the baby busters in Gen X. Uh, baby busters because the, the birth rate dropped off significantly in this generation. Uh, and then Gen X, well, for a number of reasons, I'll explain really briefly, but how many of you are from Gen X other than me? Okay, so we grew up in a generation where things started to change and there was the, the war, Vietnam War, and we grew up in it just at the, the sort of right in the middle of or the end of the sexual revolution, and the baby boomer, all the prosperity seemed to go away. So we were a little bitter, our generation, and we were known for a number of things, but one of them was our musical style. So how many of you have ever listened to Nirvana in here before? Yes, okay, and grunge music, the sad, depressing music of the 90s that came after the sort of like fluffy music of the 80s. That was us, it was Gen X, right? Well, after Gen X came Gen Y and the millennials. How many of you are millennials in here? A lot of them, okay. Well, I hate to say it, but you're entitled and you're narcissistic. <laughs> right? Send your hate mail to dlanster at unitychristian.org. Now that, 1977 to 1994, and they were very different from Gen X, and they were also the 9-11 generation. So that made a difference in their generation because this is a generation where many of those younger people, they went to war, that they did not have that back in Gen X. Very different situation uh, because of 9-11 as well. And that takes us to right now, which is Gen Z and the iGen. And iGen, I think you probably get this because of the invention of the i-whatevers, right? It's the, these kids today, they're not all kids anymore. I have a son who was born in 1999, so he's in this generation as well. How many of you are any of you? And we got one, we got a few. We got, okay, Gen Z iGeners. If you remember, why 1995 for this one? Well, if you recall, this is when Al Gore invented the internet. Okay. <laughs> that's why it's 1995. Because of what happened, and that was the start of sort of the digital revolution in, uh, in our country and around the world. So one of the things you'll, you'll, you'll see as I'll talk about this is that there's always social and cultural and you know, pop cultural trends that sort of trend one way or trend the other way. And it's a little bit like the stock market. From day to day, it may seem to do this, but over time, there's kind of a gradual change one way or the other. Well, one of the things, and that was true all the way through these first four here. One thing that's different with this generation right now is that the trends are taking steep curves, either up or down, depending on what it is you're talking about. So there's a change that is different with this generation than in previous generations. And the question, well, why is that? 
Well, it depends on who you talk to and, and what research you read, but there's a general consensus that the major reason is that these trends have sort of aggressively moved one way or the other is because of technology, and specifically because of phones. Now, not everybody agrees with that, and you'll have to decide that for yourself, but I'll show you why some people actually believe that as well. So let's play a little quiz. Let's do a little quiz here. See what you uh, know, what you are aware of, and we'll go from there. So this is based on, well, you'll see it. What you think? Number one, it's kind of small. I'll read it. More high school seniors have a driver's license today than seniors in Gen X, my generation. How many would go true? How many would go false? Okay, the answer is you are correct. It's false. I'll just give you the number. Only 72% of seniors in 2017 had a driver's license. In the baby boomer generation, nearly everyone did, uh, and in Gen. X, about 90%, right? So how come? Why is that? How many of you know you have a senior in your school that does not have their driver's license? Okay. And that is not such a big deal anymore. I remember in our school, we have it's kind of a big thing every year with the senior open houses that the kids have for graduation. And I remember specifically just a couple of years ago, a father drove his son to all of the open houses. He'd drive him, kid get out, dad just sit there in the car and wait. Kid get back there, go to the next one. Can you imagine that? Kids these days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, fewer high school seniors have a job today than in any previous generation. How many go true on that one? True. How many go false? Anybody go false? Right, you guys are a short bunch. It's true. 1972, 22% of seniors didn't work. 22%. 2016, 44% don't work, right? And number three, high school students spend more time on homework now than ever. Before you answer the question, how many of you offer more than one AP course in your school? Okay. How many go true? How many go false? All right, we're a little more split on this one. False. False. Uh, kids today spend 30 minutes per day less on average than kids in 1987 on their homework. In 1987. That's when I graduated. Homework, paid work, volunteering, extracurriculars, four hours per week less than 1987 grads. Just to give you some idea. Number four, more high school students drink alcohol than in previous generations. How many go true? How many go false? All right, you are correct. There's a reason for that. And it has to do with safety. Uh, and that's, that's something I'll come back to, is this perception of safety. Here's the issue, though. There are fewer kids in high school that drink alcohol, but the numbers actually have changed the other direction in college. So our kids from high school, if they're not prepared for college in, in many different ways, they go from like 0 to 60 incredibly quickly. So they go from nothing to binge drinking because of the culture of college. Right? That's something to just be a little bit aware of as well. Five, Gen Z experiments with fewer drugs than Gen X or millennials. How many would go true on that one? Anybody go false? All right, it's a little bit of a tricky answer. As a general rule, the answer is true, with two exceptions. You know what they are? Marijuana. And depending on how you view this, vaping. Yep. Yep, vaping. And, and we're not going to get into a vaping section here, but there's a lot of things you can put into uh, e-cigs, right? Six, students today are more resilient 
Do we need do we need the to, to Now, uh, there's a phrase I'm sure some of you have heard of it. The answer is false. Um, that some of you, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not making fun of this, I'm just pointing out something that is probably you've witnessed in your school. There's a term called lawnmower parents now, right? That parents literally mow down everything in their kids' way so that they have nothing they have to face. So that when they actually face something, it's very difficult for them to bounce back from the failure. Ensuring my kid doesn't fail, doesn't experience pain, doesn't experience loss, uh, I want to protect them. Well, that tends to make kids less resilient. Right? You don't have a lot of grit in some cases. Now, you, you, never, you never want to say always and never. So there's obviously exceptions to all of these. These are trends. These are not rules. Number seven, more teens are having sex in Gen Z than Gen X. I'm going to go true. I'm going to go false. All right. Once again, most of the majority wins. It's false. Sex is down, again, because of safety. Ironically, there's a show that some of you would have heard of from the early 2000s that actually had an impact on today's young people. So I think I heard it. Teen mom, 16 and pregnant. MTV actually affected birth rates of all things, right? However, even though actual sex is down, you all know what's certainly increased. Porn, right? Why? Because it's perceived as safe or sex is perceived as dangerous, right? That's the difference. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Last one. Gen Z is the most tolerant generation in the history of American culture. I'm going to go true. You're right. right? Uh, just as an example, because this is a Christian school convention here, we're not going to get into the, the politics and the debate on this, but if you looked at a controversial issue culturally like LGBTQ, right? and, and I won't ask you where you stand on that right now. That's a whole other sectional. Uh, but two-thirds of Gen Z have no problem with any issues related to LGBTQ, two-thirds. If you went to your home church and asked, are two-thirds of you okay with, you wouldn't get that answer from your Gen Ys on now. So it is a very tolerant generation. That's just one example. I'll give you a few more in just a little bit. So who is Gen Z then? Okay, well, how do we understand Gen Z and iGen? Uh, well, they're first of all, they're digital natives. They have no comprehension of a time before technology that we still, some of us don't really know how to operate, right? It's, it's all part of their world. I, I have a new phone that I purchased uh, a couple weeks ago, and I had nothing to do with setting it up, like literally nothing. I don't consider myself digitally stupid, uh, but my son, who is a junior in high school, he did everything, and he's flying, to, I, don't, I have no idea what he's doing, but he's doing something, right? He took care of it all for me, and I, I knew that. My wife, same way. His grandparents, when we have questions, we go to a 16-year-old. We don't go to a professional at a store. We go to our kids on technology. So it starts with primarily the phone. Right? Now, you can have different views on this. We can talk about how much it's changed, but it has certainly changed our kids. It's affected them in a way that they're not necessarily aware of, and maybe sometimes we aren't either. Uh, one of the things that especially, now our kids actually are considered to be less narcissistic than the, the previous generation, the Gen Y and the Millennials, but they also, there's an increase in sort of selfishness a little bit as well. So narcissism and selfishness are not the same thing, but they're more selfish. And one of the ways that they, you can sort of see this in a practical way in terms of their phone usage is the amount of selfies they take 
right? And Snapchat obviously adds to that because most people take a selfie every time they send a snap. They got snap streaks and all this other kind of stuff, right? So somebody who graduated in the 80s or the 70s, uh, even back there, remember when you got your senior picture taken for the yearbook? I bet there's some of you in here, when you got your senior picture taken for the yearbook, you didn't give one picture to anybody else other than the yearbook. You just had it taken and it went up in the family's family room and grandpa and grandma, but none of your friends got a picture. Here, here's a picture of me, right? Now, in the 90s, that started to change a little bit because kids would get more pictures and have three or four outfits and whatever, and they'd bring them to school in those Ziploc bags. And they would pass them out. Right? Is this, is this true? Yes. Okay. And then you started to see more of them with all kinds of people in their lockers. They came to the locker doors. Uh, and then all of a sudden that kind of went away. Now you, I never see kids handing their pictures around, ever. They're, they're, they might have a picture of themselves in a group on their graduation open house invitation, but handing pictures around, no. Because they're all taking selfies now and they're just passing things around digitally. But if you went back to 1987, when I graduated in 1975 or whatever, and you went to one of your buddies and said, hey, here's a picture of me. Here, I want you to have this. Here. <laughs> picture of you. I'm going to get punched in the face. So, that's a little different this today. So as a result of this then, new media usage. New media is not considering um, the old way we consider media, going to the movie theater or watching even a, a television. Six hours a day is, is what is average now for our, our 9 to 12. Okay, That's not including schoolwork. So a breakdown of that, that's two, two and a quarter hours a day of texting and direct messaging, right, on average. And again, these are averages, so maybe not all of our kids, obviously. Two hours a day online, roughly, give or take. Uh, one and a half hours of gaming, give or take. By the way, does anybody know what the most popular game is? Fortnite. All right, you've heard of it. Uh, yeah. Followed by, does anybody know? This one is actually a... I heard, I'm hearing a few. Uh, it's not actually World of Warcraft, which is actually up there a little bit as well. But uh, it's this one, Player Unknowns Battlegrounds and the League of Legends. So, right? Say that again. Player Unknowns Battlegrounds. Bugs. Bugs. Oh. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and then 30 minutes on video chat, primarily, which is uh, either. FaceTime, which most kids actually use, and some of them Skype, uh, but those are the two that are used the most. Now, how's that, has that made a difference in life a little bit? Yeah. Uh, it's recommended still by the American Medical Association, pediatric specialists, that kids, even 12th graders, get uh, a minimum of nine hours of sleep a night. Okay? The average for kids today is about seven, and many kids sleep with their phones, right? and so they're constantly on alert uh, for that. So what impact has it actually had then on our kids uh, today? Well, one of the things that has actually been impacting quite a bit, and I want to see if you actually have recognized this in your schools too, is friendship. Do kids actually hang out with each other anymore the way they used to? I'll give you a scenario that has played out in your school too, especially when they get older. Um, you're gonna, you have something planned, so you go to somebody's house, and you, you drive over and you're going to go pick them up. Right? When you get there, get to their house, pull up in the driveway, you don't get out of your car. You text them from the driveway. 
just tell them that you're here, and then they come out and you leave, right? Or you had to go, and you had to get out of your car, and you had to go ring the doorbell, and you had to come in and talk to the parents for a second, and then it's all good, but not anymore. So the, the phone has changed the way families interact with friends, too, right? So much so that one of my kids uh, was, uh, was dating, and, and we sort of said, well, we want to we meet the girl. I knew her. She went to our school. It's unfair, right? But, <laughs> but uh, she didn't really know if she should, like, knock or ring the doorbell. She didn't really know. So she just kind of walked in, right? communication digitally. They're just not in personal interaction nearly as much as they used to be, right? So um, in, in 15 years, over the last 15 years, they spend an hour less per day in one-on-one conversa- uh, conversation than they used to with their friends over the last 15 years. So it certainly has decreased in that way. And this may be a scene that some of you are pretty familiar with, is people <laughs> standing in a circle and all of them on their phones. Right now, there are kids, and I'll give them a lot of credit. Our kids are not dumb; they're smart kids. Are catching up. Like, this is stupid. What are we doing this for? So more of them are starting to say, "You know what? Okay, we're just phones away." One group uh, that I know of, they when they go out and they get to a location, a restaurant, or whatever, they put their phones in the middle of the table, and if anybody picks theirs up, they pay. That's the, that's the rule, right? And so they're all Dutchmen, so they don't want to pay. <laughs> so the phones stay down. It's really, that's something they thought of. No one told them to do this. They thought of it. So as I say, here's some things that we're observing. Don't undersell our kids. They're smart. Okay, they just need that opportunity. Like, oh, we can do this. We can figure this out. Uh, mental health. We could probably spend a whole section on this, uh, and we won't. But the mental health of our kids is changing as well because of digital technology. Uh, one of the main things, I'm sure you, most of you have heard of it, is the, uh, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Yeah. And again, that's not so much in person, it's necessarily just being included uh, in, in, digital, in digital land. So we deal, you deal with this as well, but now it's a way of sort of manipulating friendship to send pictures or to do a snap or to take something from Instagram and then crop that picture to make sure that you leave a certain person out, right? That way you're, you're doing a power play digitally. Uh, by, there used to be five people in this picture, now we send it out with four. How come? Well, because we're deciding we don't want that person to be part of this group anymore. It's all digital. How many of you see, see and I, don't raise your hands on this one, fighting in schools is way down. People don't have as much, nearly as much direct one-on-one confrontation. It's all digital. And most of it happens outside of school, right? And so the parents are like, well, can you guys do something about this? It's really hard to do that, as you know. How do you control something you have no control over outside of the school day? Really, really difficult. So the, the, the mental health of our kids, and I, I could give you, I'm sure many of you heard lots and lots of numbers in this before, but 31% more eighth graders feel lonely than in 2011. Right, And there's a pretty significant study, I read this in two different places, but, and please take this with a little bit of a grain of salt, it said for young people from 12th grade down, it was, it was tested thoroughly that any increase in screen time over time leads to an increase in loneliness. 
Any decrease in screen time over time leads to an increase in happiness. So if you want a simple remedy for happiness, just put your phone down and go outside. Simple, I mean, it's oversimplified. That really is what it, what it was saying. Increase in screen time, increase in loneliness. Decrease in screen time, increase in happiness. Uh, across the board, right? Uh, that was something I found really, really interesting. And as you probably know, depression and suicide rates are at all-time highs. Anybody know what the uh, number one most watched thing on Netflix was for uh, sixth through eleventh grade? Thirteen Reasons Why. Now with the second season, right? So if you haven't seen it, it's a little difficult to watch. It's pretty intense, but it actually is. You've heard of being binge-worthy. You can binge Thirteen Reasons Why because there's a lot of stuff that's going on there that our kids. They relate to. Some of them are like, this is totally like, that's not what I would do. But it speaks to their world in a way that a lot of them want to watch it. Right? So that's something as well. One thing maybe to point out a little bit uh, with this is I'm going through this quickly. We probably in our schools have noticed as well a little bit of like kids more and more seem to also want to self-diagnose. Like, I think I have depression. Yeah. How do you know that? I just do. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I have anxiety. Okay, how do you know that? Uh, well, because I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about my test. Well, okay. So there is a, with the increase of anything in culture, there's an increase also that comes along with it. The kids saying, I think I have that. I think I do. How many of you have noticed that? <coughs> a few of you have? Now, I'm not taking away from, there actually is a real increase in real anxiety, real depression, and real suicidal tendencies. That really is true. But along with that has come along a self-diagnosis. I think I, I think I have this. Uh, another one, empathy. I would strongly recommend. One of our counselors at Unity recommended this to me. Uh, I went and got it. It's a great, great book. Uh, if our kids could understand more and more what it means to be empathetic towards each other, uh, the culture can start to change. But part of the digital world is sort of every man for themselves, and you got to take care of your own business, and it's hard to step outside of your own skin. It's hard for anybody to do that. But our kids today are a little less empathetic because of the culture they've grown up in. So if you if you have time, it's an easy read. It's a lot of, it's really good to read, but uh, one of the things I would encourage you to do is to get, to get that. A term I'd like you to be aware of as well, related to empathy. Kids care, but they don't necessarily, because of this, the way their lives are, don't necessarily always get involved as much as previous generations. I'll give you an example of that. There's a term called slacktivism. Some of you have heard of it before. Slacktivism is, well, that's, really, that's really sad. That, that makes me sad to hear that. Uh, that's really too bad. Uh, but I don't really do anything about it. So the digital version of that, you remember the ice bucket challenge? Yeah. Right? Some of you maybe did it. Good. And if you remember, that was for ALS. Great. That was, and, and millions of people dumped ice water over their heads, which was a good thing. And on the positive side, that actually did raise a whole lot of money or ALS research. But on the other side, there was a lot of people who just wanted to dump ice water over the head and not actually do anything. So wearing a ribbon for a cause but not doing anything for the cause is slacktivism. Uh, clicking a retweet or a like on a cause but not actually doing something about that cause is slacktivism. That has increased in our culture today. Previous generations would say, I'm going to go and I'm going to go over to this place and I'm going to do this thing. Our kids today are, are sympathetic, 
but they're not necessarily empathetic. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to say that? Mm -hmm. Right? So if yeah. you look for that, you may see a little bit of that uh, as well. All right, next thing, too much too soon. Uh, and this is a specifically digital thing. I, when I do presentations on pornography at different schools and churches, I always tell the story about that when I, my first exposure to porn was in fifth grade when I went to a friend's house and he took me to his fort and he had an old cardboard box in which he had found a Playboy in a dumpster at a car wash. Okay? You could barely see the thing because it was all water damaged and everything else. He's like, here, take a look at this. And I'm like, I didn't know what in the world I was looking at, right? But I knew I probably shouldn't be just because we were in this fort and it was all creepy and weird. And weird. <laughs> and that was my first exposure to pornography. Now, I, I do remember that to this day that I was a fifth grader. Well, obviously that's changed. So our high school kids, you can pretty much figure that nearly every one of them has been exposed and they have access. So the degree to which they're exposed and their ability to process the things that they're exposed to, those things are so far apart from each other. There used to be a little bit more controllable degree of how you could sort of process some of that exposure as you got older, right? I remember, and I'm a little bit of confessional here, uh, as a senior in high school, going to watch the movie Revenge of the Nerds, right? It was a college kind of a, a fraternity sorority movie, and I knew I wasn't supposed to go, and I did anyway. My sister's in here, don't tell her parents. Uh, but either way, I went, and there was nudity in that. And I, I knew I shouldn't be watching it. But by today's standards, yeah. not that big of a deal. But I felt really guilty, right? I felt... Okay, we're going to probably crash on the way home, and I'm going to hell. You know, that's kind of the way I felt uh, about that movie. Now, it's very, very different from that. So, I put the powdery glass bowl in there because uh, our kids are still in the stage where they're being formed, like a, like a glass bowl forming that roll in that the pipe and form that glass. Our kids are still in that formational stage. And the stuff that they are seeing in their formational stage is having an impact on the, on the product when it hardens. And that's what a uh, concern that I have is Christian schools have to intervene in ways to say, well, what are we going to do about all this exposure that kids have right at their fingertips? So, IGN culture colliding, what does that mean then? Well, it's resulting in a new understanding for our kids, and here's the faith development part of life and faith, because it affects the way they see religion and church. Now, there's all kinds of different things you may hear or may see or may perceive about religion and church, but the bottom line is church attendance nationwide and iGen's connection to religion is going down rapidly. And I don't know if you perceive that in your own community, but as a nation, this is true. So let me just read you um, a number here. So the number of people who have kids who have nothing religious in their lives, like literally there's no talk of God, there's no church, there's no nothing religious at all. One in six eighth, eighth graders today profess that. One in five tenth graders profess that. One in four twelfth graders profess that. And one in three college kids profess that. So in a previous, in the Gen Y, or the millennial generation, there used to be a term called SBNR, spiritual but not religious Right? That became a thing for a while. Now it's not spiritual, not religious. So the, the, the terminology has sort of changed a little bit. Now in Christian school community, I'll just say this, we tend to sort of drag behind generational trends by about a quarter of a generation. So what we see now are the things that the rest of the generation in larger areas, in more public school metropolitan areas, they've seen this a while ago. 
right? We tend to lag behind a little bit in Christian school communities with those trends. It's like, I don't see that in my community. No, but if you look back 15 years, you might see some of the things that other people were seeing 15 years ago. And that's something I think to be a little bit aware of as well. And with the access to YouTube, which I showed you, more of our kids are getting information passed along to them that conflicts with what they're hearing in their Christian schools. They can do their own research. So if they want to look at what Christopher Hitchens says about atheism, they certainly can do that. And, but they don't have the filter through which to process that, and so it becomes sort of their reality. That's what I mean by the religion and the church as it's changing for our kids. So I don't want to be like depressing, but just as in terms of a generation, it is predicted to be that this will be the least religious generation in American history. Right? So if you know anything about European history, then we are trending a little bit like Europe. I've not been to Europe, but my brother spent several years over there. He talked about the empty churches. And some of you probably have recognized that. And there's a fear that this generation is sort of tipping that direction a little bit as well. Right? Sex and marriage is another thing. You probably have understood or known that marriage rates are dropping. Right now they're at all-time lows. The number of people are actually getting marriage. And the average age of first marriage is actually going up. It's 27 and 29 now. So your high school seniors are about uh, 10 to 12 years away on average from their first marriage. Right? My wife married me when she was 20. That was, that's like, what in the wide world? And the elder generation, those kids got, them, got married when they were teenagers. Now, that's probably not a good idea now. Right? We're not, we're not advocating that. But what is the sort of the byproduct of a generation that is marrying far, far less and marrying much, much later? Well, they're still human beings, right? So they're still going to have temptation, desire, uh, opportunity. So the things that they do are still, well, in a sense, changing, but they're just holding off on commitment. And that is a difference today. So, for example, uh, pornography, as I talked about earlier, there's, and this is a little crude sounding, but it's hot sex, cold emotion. Because to make a commitment to somebody requires a deep level of emotion. And I don't really want that because I've seen the mess of 50% divorce rates and all that garbage. I don't want it. I just want the perks without the commitment. Right? That's why websites like Tinder are so popular amongst the young 20-something. That's a hookup website. That's all it really is. And it's very popular amongst people who are in their 20s. Not really in high school. Tinder is known to be sort of a dangerous space for high school kids. But you can do things in your young adult life without having to really commit specifically to anyone or anything for sure. Does anybody have any questions about, about that at all? What you see here, what you what you witnessed, or anything at all? I'll just take a, a half a second here on that one. All right. One other little thing I want to point out related to that. It used to be, and again, you're adults here, so I'm going to use language that I wouldn't use in my own classroom, that if you in high school or college were called a slut as a female, that was the like a really bad thing. Right? Now, that's not the same thing. It's still not a good thing to be called. But on college campuses, a worse thing to be called is desperate. That you really want you really want somebody and you want to have a commitment to somebody. So when you call somebody desperate on a college campus today, that's like a major insult. Where it used to be the Calvin joke, right? Girls go to Calvin to get their MRS degree. Well, that's still to a degree true of Christian colleges. But in, in larger public universities, uh, not so much uh, anymore at all, right? A couple of little things that go with that. I want to make sure I cover all of these parts here. Uh, one of the things you have to, I mentioned divorce, but 36% of iGen babies are, were born to single moms. 
that has an impact as well on how they perceive marriage and uh, commitment, right? And I'll take care of myself. One thing I found interesting is on Google search, if you search phrases on Google's uh, book database, that uh, the term make yourself happy appeared three times more uh, over from 1990 to 2008. Make yourself happy. Uh, the phrase, I don't need anyone, is four times more prevalent now than it was in 1970. Right? And it didn't even exist in the Google, in the book database before 1970. I don't need anybody. Right? Another one, uh, sexuality. I mentioned LGBTQ uh, briefly a little while ago. Like I said, two-thirds have no problem with that. Give you a little flashback in time here. 1998, any of you remember this? A TV show came on that was not considered controversial, overly controversial, but just a little bit called Will and Grace. Mm-hmm. Right? Now there's a reboot of it that's on TV and it's actually quite popular. Early 2000s, a show came on cable called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Each one of those made a slight ripple, uh, but then was sort of generally, uh, I guess, more or less accepted. Uh, then you had Glee from the later 2000s, where you had more openly homosexual characters struggling in high school, if you remember the, the generation of Glee, and now you have Modern Family, right? And there's a show on Netflix called Big Mouth, which is about kids, and they're young kids, like almost prepubescent kids in some cases, struggling with sexual ideas and what this means. It's extremely vulgar, but watched by high school kids, right? Because it's on Netflix. so. Do beliefs actually affect behavior in this? Our ideas of sexuality are changing. Our kids are hearing this. Now, to give you a statement, you can choose to agree with it or not. I do believe that we, in many cases, haven't done a good enough job in Christian schools helping our kids understand the issues that go along with LGBTQ. We need to do more with that. But they're hearing a cultural voice on this, a very loud cultural voice. Does that actually impact behaviors for those who aren't necessarily one of the letters LGBTQ? Research is showing it does. So kids who aren't necessarily actually really gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender are experimenting more with those things because it's culturally cool. It's culturally accepted. Now, that's that, in a way, that sort of takes away from those who really have struggles with their sexuality it cheapens their actual problems and, and difficulties because now it's like, well, you're just choosing to do this. So let me give you some of the data here. Uh, young women okay, who have sex with at least one other woman has tripled since 1990. Right? Now how come? Why would that be? For men, it's doubled. Uh, bisexual experiences tripled amongst men and women from 1990 to 2016. So much so there's now terms on college campuses called bug, Lug and Hasbian. If you've never heard of those before, Bug is bisexual until graduation. Lug is a lesbian until graduation. And Hasbian is homosexual until I get a husband. Right? Those are college terms now that they're on. Now, again, probably not on small college campuses, Christian college campuses, but in the broader culture, yes. And gender is seen as more fluid. You can go, so if you, the, the relatively recent thing, even before some of this research is, it's called rapid onset gender dysphoria, where all of a sudden, as a younger girl, I think I might be a boy. All of a sudden, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Doctors are saying, be careful with that. Be careful with putting them in, into a transition phase. Be careful with putting them on steroids. Be careful because many of them are actually getting a little older, saying, actually, I think I want to go back this. Now that tends to, again, take away from those who are really actually struggling with it, 
but it's a cultural. So one of the things you have to consider is on all this stuff with iGen, how much does behavior uh, or the issues affect the actual behaviors that are going on? And then maybe one other thing too, real quick, uh, is the tolerance or the fear of offending. This is a generation that's incredibly scared of offending others. One of the worst things you can be called in any school, Christian, public, or otherwise, is judgmental. That means you have actually said something that is judgmental, right? And they perceive that as being really, really bad. And college campuses today, especially, are, are really being cautious with like what speakers they bring in. Many of you have heard of the comedian Chris Rock before, right? African-American comedian. He will not do any more shows on college campuses. He refuses to do shows because his people are way too quick to be offended and they want to protest. Now, some of his comedy is, is offensive, yeah. right? But uh, he won't go on college campuses that he otherwise would have gone to. So in some ways, that has affected that we have more social justice causes on college campuses, but less free speech because we don't want to offend anybody. And there's something on, it's not in high school yet, but in college called Safe Spaces. And a safe space is a space created by a college where you can go if you are offended by anything and be allowed to sort of decompress, okay, recover from your trauma. And I'm saying that somewhat sarcastically because it's, it's, it's become kind of a joke, uh, frankly. I'll give you one. This was in uh, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, Christian College. The president of the university did a chapel on 1 Corinthians 13. If you remember what that is, that's the love chapter in the Bible. And I didn't hear the chapel, but he gave a chapel on 1 Corinthians 13. A student went to him the same day after the chapel was over and said how deeply offended he was by his chapel. Why? Because you made me feel bad that I don't love enough. And I'm offended by that. And you need to apologize. Now, the president didn't take that very well. He said, this is not daycare. This is a university. Now, go back to your home and grow up. That's what he told the kid. I'm offended that you made me feel like I don't love enough. That's terrible. Well, obviously, our elections are very volatile right now. So at Emory University, a couple of kids went out one night and they wrote on the sidewalk, you know, Trump 2016. So, okay, there's going to be people who don't like that, right? But instead of just saying, that's dumb, I can't believe those idiots, you know, things like that, uh, there's a group of kids who rallied and formed a protest group, went to the president's house, protested in front of the house, and screamed, you're not listening to us, we are in pain. From chalk art? Really? That's all it said, Trump 2016. And they were so offended by that that they believed they now were in pain uh, from that. So they created a safe space for those kids to sort of deal with their pain uh, from that chalk art. Right? That's what we mean by tolerance. And as an overall thing, you might call this, this relativism has been around forever. But the increase of relativism shown through these things as well, whatever, anything goes, there's really not a standard for truth. So, if you want to know, this is actually a survey from my high school, what actually kids are thinking about, what's on their mind, this is the stuff they want to talk about right here. Okay, these are seniors in high school, this is sort of their list of like, this is what we're thinking about right now. So that will have an impact on what we're going to finish with here in the short amount of time that we have left, which is what are we going to do? Right? How do, what do we do? Because you can't just be told information that you have anything to do. First thing is this. I am a firm believer that in Christian schools, it uh, doesn't matter what grade level it is, we need to teach, capital T, truth. That there is actually a standard for truth. The Bible is not a list of suggestions. The Bible is a list of commands. The Bible is a statement of belief, and it's a statement of truth. You don't have to believe it 
if you don't want to. That doesn't make it any less true. I always tell my seniors, you don't have to believe in gravity either, but jump up on your desk and then take a step off and you'll become a convert on the way down, right? It doesn't have to be, you don't have to like it for it to be true. So teaching it with gentleness and love, but teaching that there actually is truth. Now I put down the recognizing unique position of a Christian school uh, from the Barna book. I want to read you just a short paragraph based on his research. And this is, you know, written more to church people, but this is what, I'll just read you the short sentence. It says, engaged Christian teens, however, are at a stark contrast to their peers on moral issues. We see significant gaps between their beliefs and all others, including other church-going teens on most moral issues, suggesting that church attendance alone does not create distinctive believers. Instead, only those teens who grow up with strong Christian education and intentional discipleship are taking the Bible's moral principles to heart, while others look more like the broader culture. What more to Give that to your parents, right? Uh, that's why we have Christian schools. Church is good, but in iGen, it's probably not enough. We can't make assumptions that our kids get us at church can't make that assumption. And I'm certainly not knocking the church. I mean, pastors in here, they're doing everything they probably can do, but it's not enough uh, in terms of what we can do. Because one thing we have, we have time. We get them every day uh, in school. They go one time a week to church usually. Okay. Uh, second thing, teach judgment and discernment. It is really okay to call something what it is. That's really okay. So to say something is wrong, or to say something is not acceptable, that is okay to do. Kids have not changed. They are looking for boundaries. They're looking for them. Mm -hmm. And if they're none provided, they'll find their own. And that's a confusing world for them. So don't be afraid in, our, in, your, in your classroom to be specific and call something what it is. I talk about, I give my kids an example. I say, okay, our 90% 90, 90 of people in American culture uh, have sex before marriage. Is sex before marriage wrong? I use that word, is it wrong? It's amazing how very few are willing to say, yes, that is wrong. It's amazing, right? Because it's so culturally accepted. I say, well, how do you know that it, where do you come up with the fact that it isn't? Give me something that defends it, that justifies it. And they can't, obviously. I say, well, okay, let's take a look at it. Now, what I'm not trying to make any of you in the room, or the classroom, my students' classroom, feel guilty, but... Let's take a look at what the truth is. It's okay to do that with your kids. They are looking for it. Uh, third one, maybe maybe the most difficult one. Parents, uh, someone said this to me, and I don't remember who it is. But the phrase was, we're only as effective as our parents allow us to be. Right? Our kids come to school from a home. They don't come to our school from a vacuum. And so part of this is educating parents. This is what we are doing in Christian education. This is what we're trying to accomplish in Christian education. That seems to be a very important part. A difficult one, maybe, is rethinking educational practice. Because of our kids being digital natives, the average length of a YouTube video that our kids watch is three minutes long. That's the average length of a YouTube video that they watch. So to plop in a video that is 45 minutes long and think that they're going to pay attention to the whole thing probably is not realistic unless it's really, really good, right? There's a, an educational expression, the longer I talk, the better I have to be, Yeah. right? Uh, and most of us aren't good enough to go that long because <laughs> attention spans have, so we have to adjust. Now, does that mean you give up on reading books? 
No, absolutely not. But finding ways to sort of meet them where they are and then inspiring them to push a little farther rather than expecting that, well, it worked in the 70s, it's got to work now, right? That just probably won't work. Uh, and engage the world and inform yourself, right? That's sort of the uh, understanding of water, don't ask the fish. A couple of them, and I'll be willing to give you stand you afterwards as well, but really good resources for learning what, what's going on in our kids' world today. Common Sense Media is a great one. It's not necessarily Christian. It's really, really good. This is a highly recommended one. You can get different versions of this too with the Culture Translator. It tells you what's going on in youth culture. It tells you what you can do about it as well. Uh, there's multiple versions of that. And then another one that is distinctively Christian and reformed without really saying it is Youth Culture Today or CPYU from Walt Mueller. Really, really good stuff as well. There are others. I'm just throwing a couple today just to get you started. So that must be the bell. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming. If you have questions, I'll be up here for a little bit. But uh, otherwise, thank you.